All right. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, uh, please turn with me to Psalm 5. I was looking at my sermon yesterday, and I said to Jen, I said, man, I might preach two pretty good sermons tomorrow. I had way too much, uh, and everyone is just, their hearts are melting within them. As um, So I had to decide, did I want to try to just cut a ton uh, to make it a manageable single sermon, or did I want to give you all two shorter sermons, uh, one this week and one next week? I went with the two shorter sermons, um, so this is going to be a two-part uh, mini-sermon series on Psalm 5. So we'll look at it this week, and then we'll pick up um, some of the other themes uh, next week. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about why we're splitting it up and what's going on here uh, in just a minute. Uh, but Psalm 5 is our passage this morning. Uh, this is God's Word for us, His people, today. Listen to this. To the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness, because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouths. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray and ask for his help to understand it. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would send your Holy Spirit to us, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds, that you would speak words of truth and comfort and correction to us. Lord, we pray that you would show us our sin, but we pray also that you would show us our Savior. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As Psalm 5 opens, David is praying and he is anguished. Do you hear that? 
He says, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. He is groaning because he is so disturbed in his spirit. He is crying out, you see in verse 2, crying out to God. And it seems like what is happening in Psalm 5 is not that David is actively under threat in the same way that he would have been in, say, Psalm 3, where his son was seeking to kill him and overthrow him and take over the kingdom in his stead. Instead, it seems like what is actually happening here in Psalm 5 is David is looking at the world around him and he is overwhelmed by the amount of evil and wickedness that he sees. David is grieving, he is anguished, he is groaning, he is crying out to God because of the prevalence and the power and the practice of sin and evil in the world. And you see him describe that experience, what he's seeing in the world around him. You see it kind of throughout the passage, but in verse 6, He says that the evil he sees in the world world is people who are deceitful, who are lying, who are bloodthirsty. And being bloodthirsty means that these people thought that the entire world was really a competition and life in the world was about getting and keeping power. And so people are either props or problems and obstacles to be overcome. These are people who are willing to do anything to get and keep power. In verse 9, you see that they are flatterers and they are liars. They are using their words to manipulate people, to try to get and keep influence for themselves. And verse 9 also says that their inmost self is destruction. They are destructive people. Verse 5 tells us that these evil and wicked people are also boastful. They are proud of their actions. They are proud of their posture and their stance in the world. They are doing all of these behaviors just openly and flaunting them publicly. These are not secret sins. These are very public issues. And I think the composite picture you get from all of those descriptions really gives us an idea of what David is seeing in the world around him. He is seeing people who are willing to manipulate and use any means necessary to gain power and to gain influence over other people. And because of that, they are using and abusing people for their own ends. They're using people and then discarding them when those people are no longer useful to them. They are abusing people who are weaker than them. They are people of wickedness. And David sees them in the world all around him and he is anguished by their prevalence. And he is anguished also by their apparent success. It's frustrating to him to see these people actually gaining power. And influence. Friends, we live in the same world. This isn't just something that was a quirk of history in ancient Israel 3,000 years ago. This is the same world. We see the same things. We see it in the world around us, people who are manipulative, people who are lying and deceitful and boasting and using and abusing others and manipulating people, trying to get power and influence in the culture and in the world or even in your workplace or your family. 
You see it all around you. Friends, unfortunately, we even see this sometimes in the church. We see almost monthly, story after story of some prominent pastor or ministry leader or theologian who is using and abusing people just to get and keep power and influence. And they get to the point that they feel like they are the brand. And they hurt people. And they are destructive. Their throats are an open grave, as David says in verse 9. Psalm 5 is a gift that God has given to his people to help them think about what it means to live in a world like that, to help them understand what a faithful response is to a world like that. And in particular, what Psalm 5 does is it teaches us what it means to pray to God in a situation like that. Part of why I didn't want to try to do this as a shorter single sermon, uh, because there's so much here in Psalm 5, is I just don't think we talk about prayer enough. So the idea of talking for two weeks about prayer when there's really so much in Psalm 5, I thought would be helpful. And I thought it would be helpful because I think prayer is something we often don't understand And if we've spent a long time in the church or if we grew up in the church, honestly, prayer might be something that we just feel guilty about. Um, Prayer and like reading your Bible and evangelism tend to be the three things that people that have spent a long time in the church feel guilty for not doing more of. And so I think this will be helpful. I hope this will be helpful as we think through the next two weeks about what prayer is and why prayer matters, and how we can pray in the midst of a world that is broken. So, this week, we're going to look at David's prayer. We're going to look at this prayer that is Psalm 5, and we're going to focus on two things. We're going to focus on David's posture in his prayer, and we're going to look at the basis of David's prayer. On what grounds is David praying? Next week, we're going to look at the content of his prayer and then the hope of his prayer. So this week is his posture and the basis of his prayer. Next week will be the content and the hope of his prayer. So then let's think about David's posture here in Psalm 5 as he prays. When I say posture, what I mean is how is it that we approach God in prayer? What do we do when we come to God in prayer? And what David is doing in Psalm 5 is he is illustrating and teaching for us a faithful posture, especially in the light of being overwhelmed by evil and wickedness in the world around us. And there's four things, we'll go through these quickly, but four things that I think we see about David's posture here that can be instructive for us as God's people facing a very similar world. And here's the first thing about David's posture. He's honest. David is honest about his experience of brokenness in the world. You see that when he says that he is groaning as he looks at the world around him. You see that in verse 2 when he says he is crying out. David is not pretending to God. David is not going to God and acting like everything is really fine because God never asks us to pretend that everything 
is fine. And I think sometimes we can look at particular places in the Bible and we can look at them in isolation and we can say that should be our posture in everything. So for instance, we might look at the book of Job. And we see in the book of Job a, a faithful man who loses everything because of this conversation that God and Satan are having about Job's faithfulness. And one of the things we see Job do is he says, as he loses his family, like the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And we think that should be our posture in everything. And in reality, what we also see in Job is Job's profound grief at those things, and that Job does, in fact, pour out his heart to the Lord. And we see throughout the Psalms what it looks like to be honest before God about what we are experiencing. And that's the first thing that we see here from David. God does not ask us to pretend that things are great when we pray to him. When we experience hardship, when we experience grief, when we experience difficulty and sorrow, we are invited to bring those things to him and to bring them honestly. Lord, this hurts. And that is good. And that is faithful. That's the first thing we see about David's posture here is that it's honest about what he's experiencing. Here's the second posture that we see David model for us. It is persistent. David is persistent. Uh, you see that in verse 3 where he says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And it seems like what David is probably referencing there when he talks about the morning sacrifice was actually a daily sacrifice that was offered in ancient Israel in the tabernacle. Uh, and you see it uh, written about in Exodus chapter 29. And one of the things that's fascinating is in Exodus 29 verse 42 where God is commanding his people to offer a lamb to him daily to cover their sins. God says, when you do this, I will speak to you. When you offer this morning sacrifice, I will speak to you. I will speak with you. And so the picture we get here is of David daily going to the tabernacle and seeing that daily sacrifice being offered and asking God to speak with him. It's a picture of David praying these prayers over and over and over and over again. David is praying daily about these things. David is praying daily about his experience, about the wickedness and the evil he sees in the world. And there's a couple of things here I'll note. First of all, God is not annoyed by this. God is not annoyed when we ask for the same things over and over and over again. And in that, God is a better parent than I am. Uh, because when my kids ask for the same thing over and over and over and over, uh, I tend to get a little annoyed. God does not. God delights each and every time that we ask him for something. He invites us to pray like this. Uh, you remember the, the parable that Jesus tells of the persistent widow who bangs on the door in the middle of the night uh, until the master opens the door and she can make her request. Jesus says, pray like that. 
That's how we see David praying here. He is persistent. But let me also, on the other side, caution us against thinking that praying persistently means praying at length. Because I think that is so often why we feel guilty about the way that we pray. We feel like we should be praying for extended periods of time every single day. And friends, it's a good thing to pray. I'm not saying not to do that. But what I am saying is if you feel guilty because your prayers are short, you should not feel guilty. Psalm 5 is given to instruct us in how to pray, and it took me less than a minute to read the whole thing. This is not a long prayer. Again, when Jesus' disciples go to him in the Gospels and say, teach us to pray, he gives them the Lord's Prayer, which is short enough that we can do it in worship each and every week. We are not called as God's people to feel guilty for not praying extra long prayers all the time. A simple prayer is still a prayer. Don't feel guilty about that. So that's the second posture we see David model here. He is honest and he is persistent. The third thing we see from David is that he is expectant. Uh, You see it also in verse 3. Because David says, in the morning I prepare the sacrifice for you. We talked about that. And then he says, and watch. I watch. And that word watch has this posture of expectant waiting. David is looking to see what God will do. Looking to see how God will answer. And waiting in the Christian life, waiting when we pray is not doing nothing. It is watching. It is knowing that God has promised to answer our prayers. And it is waiting to see what he will do. I think we often pray without expectation. I think sometimes we pray and we preemptively want to avoid disappointment. So we don't expect that God will answer. And we don't pray expectantly. But what David is doing here is he is modeling for us an expectant posture. Perhaps today will be the day that the Lord intervenes. About 30 years ago, uh, a pastor in our denomination uh, was pastoring a church in South Carolina, and South Carolina was having a major drought. And it was so bad that the uh, state authorities uh, asked for pastors to gather and pray for rain. I mean, it was, it was bad. So the night came for this gathering where all of these pastors in Columbia, South Carolina, were going to get together and pray. Uh, and this pastor from our denomination, whose name is Joe Novenson, Joe ended up on the front page of the news because Joe showed up with an umbrella. And he said, if we were going to pray for rain, I thought I should be prepared. He was praying expectantly. And that's what it means. We, we pray and, and believe that God not only delights to receive our prayers, but that God hears our prayers and that God will answer our prayers. 
And it's not that we magically control God by our prayers or that our belief that we will get what we're asking for somehow unlocks these blessings. It's just simply that when we pray to God, we are asking him to do something and he is a God who is living. He is a God who delights to give good gifts to his children. We should pray with expectation that he will give us all we need. Here's the fourth posture we see in the passage. That is, David prays obediently. You see it in verse 2. He says, give attention to the sound of my cry. And then he says, my king and my God. My king and my God. David, as he comes to the Lord, is doing so from a posture of submission of recognizing that even as the king of Israel, he is under authority. And because he is under authority, David as the king, his life and his power and his influence is not his to do with as he pleases. It's not his to just sort of do whatever he wants to do, and it's not his to maintain by whatever means he deems necessary. David prays as a man under authority, and God is inviting us here to realize that when we pray, we too are under authority. We are praying to our King and our God. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, the Apostle Paul reminds the Corinthian Christians that they are not their own. They belong to another. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. And so because of that, our life, our power, our influence aren't just ours to do whatever we want with. We pray under the authority and in submission to the authority of our God. One of the things I love so much about the Seculosity book that is now uh, available uh, on the book table, uh, or the bookshelf, I guess we'll call it, is it really accounts for all of the ways that we try to make meaning and influence and power and control in our own lives. It shows us a lot of the ways that our hearts wander from the centrality of the gospel and how we try to craft an identity for ourselves. One of the coolest things that David Zoll does in that book is he crafts a concept that he calls enoughness. Enoughness. And that is, what is the thing you are looking for in this life to make you feel like you are enough? Because your functional religion is wherever you are looking for enoughness. And for so many of us, we look for enoughness in things like our work or in our reputation, or in being perceived as competent, or attractive, or in having enough money, or enough status, or enough influence, or whatever it might be. Friends, we are not our own. Life is not ours to make our own meaning of. Life is not ours to find enoughness in. God has told us where we will find our enoughness, and it is only in Christ. It is only in Christ that we have an identity stable enough to hold up all of our hopes and our dreams and our fears. 
Uh, I read a study a few years ago about the most dangerous place to raise children for their long-term emotional well-being was in the suburbs. And the reason for that, according to this, um, this study, was the pressure that we put on kids to perform and achieve. And we tell them that at any point, if they mess up, then the rest of their life is off trajectory. It's over. They've lost it. And the pressure we put on kids leaves them resembling, and and David Zoll actually quotes this study too, uh, it leaves our children resembling trauma victims uh, in their lives. Friends, that is not what it looks like to live a life under the authority and in submission to King Jesus. So David shows us here posture. As we approach God, as we are overwhelmed at the brokenness around us, we can be honest, we can be persistent, we should be expectant, and we should be obedient as we come to the Lord in prayer. But what we also see David model here in Psalm 5 is what it means to pray on a confident basis. And the basis upon which David prays, the very grounds of his prayer, is the character of God. And you see that character in verses 4 to 6. He says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil will not dwell with you. The Lord hates evil. The Lord despises the boastful, those who prop themselves up as better than others and brag about their self-sufficiency and their self-importance. This God will judge, ultimately, the wicked, because this God is holy. And when we say God is holy, what we mean is that God is set apart. He's not like us. Everything that we think is good in the world finds its perfection in the character of God. He is perfect and holy, and he hates anything that is contrary to his character. And I think this teaches us two quick things about praying. The first thing it shows us is that David is praying God's character and God's promises back to him. Um, That is a faithful thing for us to do. He's saying, God, you are holy. Act on that. Lord, you are holy. Please judge the wicked. Please put an end to all of this madness and evil in the world around us. And we see throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, throughout the entirety of the scriptures, prayers like this. You remember we talked about Habakkuk. Uh, Whenever that was. It's been a long time. That was in the spring? That wasn't that long ago. Okay, we were there. Sorry. Uh, Habakkuk does the same thing at the beginning. He says, Lord, everything's terrible. And God says, good news, I'm sending the Babylonians to judge you. And he's like, how can that be? Like, you are too holy to even look at evil, and you're sending people worse than us to judge us? Like, that is not an unfaithful thing to pray to God. It is not unfaithful to pray God's character or his promises back to him because God is not threatened or insecure. He doesn't feel like he's inadequate when we say things like that to him. In fact, he invites us to do this. 
So think about the places where you can do this in your own life. You can pray, for instance, for your children this way. Because you can say, Lord, you have promised that the gospel promises are for us and for our children, and my kids are far from you. Where are you? Please fulfill this promise. You can do the same thing praying for healing, praying for deliverance, praying for growth in grace. Maybe you've got a sin struggle that you just keep falling back into over and over and over again, and you're wondering if anything will ever happen. You can say, Lord, you promised that you are at work in me, and yet it feels like I am helpless before this sin. Change me. Pray God's character and his promises back to him. The second thing we have to realize as we think about God's character is that it's kind of bad news. It's bad news for us. Because God is holy. And as much as we might wish it were the case, sinners are not other people. Sinners are us. The great Russian uh, political dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, one time said, if only we could find the wicked people and just sort of round them up and eliminate them and then everything would be great. Unfortunately, the line dividing good and evil runs through every human heart. Friends, when we read verses 4 to 6, And we see God say that he doesn't delight in wickedness, that evil can't dwell with him, that the boastful can't stand before him, that he hates evildoers and will destroy those who speak lies, and that he abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful. We should read that and we should feel a little uncomfortable because that describes us. And honestly, when we read even that list of sins, that's not even like huge sins that God is saying he hates and that won't dwell with him. He's not saying he hates genocide and, um, you know, dumping toxic waste uh, in the environment. He's saying he hates deceit. He hates lies. He hates boastfulness. Friends, these are sins that are all over our culture and all in our hearts. And this is why ultimately Psalm 5 reminds us that in the face of the bad news of God's holiness, there is good news in the gospel. And friends, the gospel is nowhere more clear than in the cross of Jesus. On the cross, we see God's absolute holiness. On the cross, we see how seriously God takes sin. God judges his son with the punishment that sin deserves on the cross. But on the cross, we also see God's breathtaking mercy to sinners. We see on the cross Jesus, who lived a perfectly righteous life. Love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength every second and every breath of his life. Loved his neighbor as himself. Perfect and full obedience and righteousness. And yet on the cross, he takes the punishment that sinners deserve. The full weight of a holy God's wrath against evil 
and wickedness. And friends, because of what Jesus has done, we can pray to God as those who are accounted righteous. We can pray to God like we are holy, not because we are righteous on our own, but because Christ has given us his righteousness. And so, friends, we're reminded that the gospel does not just start us in the Christian life And then we move on to higher forms of spirituality where we are better and better and better and better. The gospel sustains us in the Christian life. One pastor said it's not just the ABCs of the Christian life, it is the A to Z of the Christian life. Friends, we never outgrow our need to remember what God has done for us in Christ because it is the very basis of all of our prayers. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you today as sinners that you have redeemed. And Lord, we thank you that though our hearts are wicked, though we are boastful and arrogant and deceitful, Though we lie and flatter, Lord, you loved us and sent Christ to the cross that we might be counted as righteous in your sight. And Lord, we thank you that even today, by your spirit, you are making us righteous. You're not just regarding us as righteous. You are actually conforming us to the image of Christ. And Lord, we pray that as you do that, that you would teach us to pray. Lord, help us to be honest as we come to you about our experiences, about our desires, about our needs and our wants. Lord, help us to be persistent as we come to you in prayer. Lord, let us not grow weary in asking you and in believing that you can and you will answer prayer. Lord, help us to be expectant and help us to be obedient. Lord, we pray that you would help us remind, be, be reminded that we are not our own, but we come as those under your authority, under your lordship. Father, even now as we come to the Lord's table, I pray that you would do these things in us. And Lord, I pray that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose, to anchor us, in the reality of Christ's work on our behalf. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.